part one of this book is all about the problem. How do we know the situation with our kids has really gotten worse? Don't all parents worry about their teens? Why is this coming-of-age crisis especially dangerous for America with our Republican small-r vision of nationhood? Why can't we simply hope our schools will evolve to fix it? Part two, the more constructive part, is how we tackle this tangled problem. If we believe that adolescence should be a finite and intentional period for coming of age, what rituals might we recover from the past? What traditions should we reform? And since technology helped birth many of our newly problematic ways of experiencing adolescence, might there be solutions in these same technologies that can bring help and bring aid to parents with this conundrum? So what are some of the suggestions? In short term, overcome peer culture and wrestle with other life stages. This is uh, chapter four of Sass's book. This isn't a virtue so much as prudent advice, which is virtuous. We need to find ways to liberate our kids from the tyranny of the present. One basic way to do that is to know other people, especially older people. Another is to grapple with the reality of our bodies, which are in time. They are born and grow and they suffer and decline. The hypergenerational segregation of our time is bizarre, unhealthy, and historically unprecedented, and it takes intentionality and work to overcome it. In Chapter 5, I talk about working hard. Almost everyone interesting I've ever met has a substantive and passionate answer to the question, what was the first really hard work you did as a kid? Bizarrely, our culture is now trying to protect kids from similar hard experiences. We should be running in exactly the opposite direction. We should be figuring out how to help build in them a menu of really hard tasks to tackle. They need to know in their hearts and in their bones that suffering is not something to be avoided, but to be conquered. Quote, as one grows older, Theodore Roosevelt wrote his oldest son, Ted Jr., the bitter and the sweet keep coming together. The only thing to do is to grin and bear it, to flinch as little as possible under the punishment, and to keep pegging steadily away until the luck turns. Let's go one step further and say that suffering in our work is actually character building and it's virtuous. Chapter 6 talks about resisting consumption. We already know Americans consume exorbitant amounts of media every day, whether on television, on the internet, on tablets, or smartphones. We just consume too much stuff, and yet people remain unhappy and uncertain as to why. Well, we know why. Aristotle knew why. St. Augustine knew why. Rousseau knew why. And we have a raft of contemporary studies from psychologists, neuroscientists, and sociologists that all say more or less the same thing. Consumption is not the key to happiness. Production is meaningful, hard work that actually serves and benefits a neighbor, thereby making a real difference in the world, contributes to long-term, deep happiness and well-being. Consumption just consumes. In Chapter 7, I'll discuss travel to experience the difference between need and want. You can learn a lot about your own culture by experiencing other cultures. Meaningful travel isn't about partying at a dance club in Cancun or walking the tourist-only parts of a foreign port or the luxury cruise back cabins. It's about engaging people in a culture who have assumptions about life, about economics, and about the role of government far different than yours. Chapter 8 talks about becoming truly literate. Obviously, you know how to read, but do you know how to read well? Do you know how to read critically and therefore to think critically? Consider for a moment before you answer. Most of us who read on our phones or tablets do not read deeply or retain such information as when we read physical books or papers. We skim. We know U.S. students continue to struggle with basic reading comprehension. On the National Assessment of Education Progress, we see this. We know that literacy has been in an absolute decline since the 1960s, but America's founders understood literacy as a prerequisite for freedom and our form of self-government. Once we know how to read, what we read matters, so let's build some reading list of books you plan to wrestle with and be shaped by for the rest of your lifetime.
Then at the end of the book, we'll explore why America is the world's first modern creedal nation, that is a nation built not on shared ethnicity so much as on a set of shared ideas about freedom of speech, press, religion, and assembly is even more dependent on the conscious transmission of precise beliefs about liberty and adult responsibility than other nations. This is chapter 9. Stranded in Neverland Peter Pan is a story about a boy who refuses to grow up. We often misremember it as a cheery fairy tale. It isn't. In the end, the Peter of J.M. Barry's classic is not at all a commendable hero. He's selfish and short-sighted. Quote, I don't want to go to school and learn solemn things, Peter tells us. I don't want to be a man. He ultimately cannot remember his past and thus learns nothing from it. Defining Adolescence No civilization has ever embraced endless adolescence before. Some spoiled dynastic families have made efforts to cultivate it, but the life of being pampered has rarely ended well for the children of the ultra-rich either. In fact, very few cultures have ever had much adolescence at all, and when they did, they clearly delineated it with communal rituals that forced individuals up and out of adolescence. Traditionally, the path to adulthood has been clear. Ancient Roman law explicitly divided the three stages of youth before adulthood into seven-year segments. Infantia, birth, age through six, Puritia, 7 through 13, Puberitas, 14 to 20. This basic framing of these three phases endured until very recently. While they, former adolescent transition events into adulthood, frequently involve hardship, they are, they're not meant to make kids miserable. They're intended to prime them for the inevitable tribulations and trials that come with adulthood and to instill in them a work ethic and a perseverance necessary to survive upon leaving home. It's not that Americans don't have coming-of-age rituals, but rather those rituals have become more automatic, less purposeful than achievement-based rituals. Our principal hurdles involve uncomplicated things like taking pictures before prom or learning to pause the appropriate length of time before walking out to receive a high school diploma, which is granted to virtually everyone who doesn't quit school. Adolescence is different from the earlier two stages of childhood in that its endpoint is more debatable and its length is more uncertain. Adolescence can be non-existent, or short, or medium-length, or long. Endless adolescence, however, is bizarrely oxymoronic. Adolescence has always been a means to an end. Its point was to aid the transition to adulthood, not to be an end in and of itself. How do we get to this point, where a large portion of our people in the prime of their lives are stuck in a sad sort of limbo, ordering pizza on cell phones while streaming Netflix from their parents' basement, where they live? There's no simple answer, but we can wrap our minds around the current unraveling of adolescence by briefly considering five big developments in the United States in the first decades after World War II. We still have more material surplus than any other people in any place in all of history. That's obviously good news, but it also has a large and undiscussed downside. Our jaw-dropping wealth accumulation over the past 70 years has allowed America's youth to indulge in more creature comforts than any generation ever has before them. Second, and related to our, our overconsumption, our kids no longer know how to produce. They don't really grow up around work. Today's children are likely to conceive of work as one job, and yet less likely to work the same job as their parents, such as on a family farm or ranch, or in the same trade than ever before. Most kids' hours are spent chiefly in age-segregated environments. This vacuum of adult authority and of the compulsory nature of work has been filled first by a pure culture, of the school and more recently by the narcissistic autonomy of the digital world. Generations uh, of children have been liberated from the social and moral universes of their elders much earlier than, than previous generations. Third, the warning bells have been tolling for half a century about the nuclear family being in peril, and all of that turned out to be right. 
A stunning portion of our kids now experience the disruption of home life, one that rattles the stable, trusted environment from which they should be finding an orderly launch into independent adulthood. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the legendary New York Democrat, whose desk I occupy on the U.S. Senate floor, first sounded the alarm about this crisis of the black family disintegration. The U.S. Department of Labor published Moynihan's report on why federal officials should panic about the household collapse in 1965. At the time, the crisis was out of wedlock birth rate amongst African Americans rocketing towards one in four, compared to <clears throat> with a rate in the low single digits for whites. Five decades later, the works of Charles Murray, Robert Putnam, and J.D. Vance show that these tragic developments are spreading into new geographic and ethnic communities. The share of white births occurring outside of marriage is now roughly 3 in 10, which is higher than the emergency black rate of the 1960s. And although the teen pregnancy rate is down, the Urban Institute's Moynihan Report Revisited pegs the overall share of black births now occurring outside marriage at more than 7 in 10. Fourth, we have unhelpfully come to so identify our obligations to teenagers with the institution of secondary schooling that we have lost the collective memory of folks who came of age without schooling as the defining formative institution in life. The moral hollowing of schooling is also attributable to the erosion of secondary education's previously secure place and purpose in preparing kids for steady jobs right after graduation. Education historian Paula Fass traces the drift towards the warehousing of our young to the school's loss of their tangible culminating purpose to prepare the emerging generation for conclusive entry into adult productivity. Instead, quote, going to high school became a stopover during the teen years with very little to offer beyond academic selection for those who would go on to college. When a diploma was no longer a predictable ticket to full-time middle-class job and a set of expectations about adulthood, high schools began to fray. Pure culture metastasized <clears throat> to fill the vacuum of purpose. Instead of learning how to behave from their teachers they, who no longer really saw their jobs as moral instruction and instilling wisdom acquired through age and experience, kids were learning how to behave from other kids with predictable results. Looking back, the unprecedented consumption, the decreasing presence of work in the lives of young people, the more frequent broken homes of that turbulent decade called divide in the experience of American adolescence. Arguably the most fundamental cleavage in American life is between those who came of age after rather than before the baby boom. 